Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and my guest today is Catherine Vondi. Kat is a writer and director working in film, theater, and literature, prose and poetry. Uh, she's won a bunch of awards and did her MFA in film production at USC and did her undergrad at Amherst College. In this interview, we talk storytelling, the essential components, the impact of surprise, the popcorn scares and Spielberg's Jaws, the idea of tromedy and juxtaposing sadness and humor in stories, and a whole lot more. Enjoy my conversation with Kat Fondi. Kat, thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so growing up, what was your favorite Disney movie? It was definitely Little Mermaid, even though I feel like if you look at it from a modern perspective, you're like, wow, that's really problematic in terms of feminism and stuff. But I did love The Little Mermaid. Was there a particular song that you loved? Oh, of course. All of me and my friends would go around singing Part of Your World all the time. So, I think, are they remaking that as live action? They are, yeah. Ernest, you went to USC in the early 2000s? Yeah, 2004 is when I started. And so your first year at USC, what did you shoot on? So our first class we shot on, I think, the PD-150. So this is 507? It's 507. 507 okay. was PD-150. Wait, what's PD-150? It was one of the, I think it's a Sony digital camera. It's like a the mini cassettes. Yep. The mini DV. Yeah. I still have a big bag just full. I don't even know where you can play them anymore because people right. don't use those anymore. But I have a little bag of those sitting around. And then second semester for 508, we shot on film and it was an RE Flex was what we were shooting on, I think. I'm going to have to like double check my records, but I'm pretty sure that's what we were shooting on. So with the mini DV, what did you edit on? So we edited on Avid. So we okay. could edit on a nonlinear, nonlinear editing system, which actually at Amherst, I'd taken a film class and we did not have nonlinear. We had a much more cumbersome linear editing system that we had to work with. Was it physical or was it? on the computer? It was, if I'm remembering correctly, it was like an edit bay in Frost with like a bunch of monitors set up. And yeah, it was, I can't remember the details because again, this was like a long time ago, but it was definitely like you had to figure out what you wanted to like splice in and then just hope the timing worked out because if you did it wrong, you'd have to start all over again. So for 508 at USC, when you shot on film, what did you edit on? We edited on Avid. So yeah, we digitized the footage. And I see. Okay. On Avid, yeah. So you're not like splite cutting. And, and well, I've never had like that. that experience. No. Have you? Me. No. I, I visited Stanford. Stanford has a master's program that's documentary focused. And this is a couple of years ago, but they, their first year, you shoot on 16 millimeter and you edit on a, I forget the name of the editing station, but it's physically, you physically edit it. And you tape it together. And yes. It's a very like tangible, physical thing. Okay. Yeah. And you only get, get, I don't know, eight minutes of film stock to shoot with, which I think there's a lot to be said for those types of limitations. That's one of my rants that I go on a lot is I feel like some of the movies, once directors get to a certain point in their career, like people just stop telling them no and they let them do whatever the, they want to do. And then I feel like the movies aren't necessarily as good because I think there is something about having limitations that 
makes you do some creative problem solving that often helps storytelling. Definitely. And I did photography in high school and it was 35 millimeter, dark room, all of that. And so you only have in a film role, you only have 24 or 36 shots. You paid special attention to composing the shot and making sure the lighting's correct, focus is correct. And now with our phone, our phones, which the cameras are amazing, but I notice I still have that, that mindset of, I might just, with my phone, I might just take three shots, but some of my friends and younger people that I know, they'll take, they'll shoot a hundred shots and then they'll just go through, swipe through and try to find the right one. Yeah. Not even look at the screen, just hold up the camera, like picture, and then do right. the editing afterwards, figure out what you want. That there, There's something to be said for speed and volume, but it definitely takes the intentionality out of it. And you've yeah, you, I think it's like easier to take good pictures now because you can only throw a filter on it and make it look good, but it's harder to make it match with what you have in your mind. It's like more by chance if you take something good. And I don't even know that it's faster, right? Because if you or I take 30 seconds to really compose and set up the shot and then we have it versus now you got to swipe through a hundred shots to figure out which one you want and then edit it how you want it and so forth. And look at the minute differences between this one and this one, like this one, like you see a little bit more of somebody's shoulders. So maybe you don't want, yeah, there's a lot of spinning wheels that goes along with that process. Yeah. The way that, that I decide which group photo to use is I just swipe through only looking at myself and yeah. find the best one and that's the one I use. Look, there are so few opportunities you have in this life to really make decisions that benefit you and you only, and you might as well take advantage of them when you can. And so where I see that now, having finished my first semester at USC, where I see that same approach in filmmaking is a lot of my classmates, most of whom are in their late twenties, they will shoot a ton of footage and then it's okay. We're going to find it in the edit, which is totally doable and that's a way to do it. But I actually, to my detriment for one of the 507 projects, I didn't shoot enough because I was so intentional about shooting. I didn't get enough coverage. So that's a little bit of a shift that, that I need to make at the same time. It sets up the edit really well. If you've shot the shots that you want and you've thought through ahead of time, I want this angle for this shot and this angle for this shot, et cetera. I think there's definitely a happy medium to go for because you don't mm -hmm. want to you don't want to give your editor so much that like it makes their brains explode. But I, I definitely have heard anecdotes about directors that have been like, oh, I'm not going to shoot other coverage of this because I only want it to be like a wonder. And so I'm just not shooting it and they have no choice but to do it that way. I think there is a happy medium to, to find between those two like far ends of the spectrum. When you were at USC, did you find, were your classmates more collaborative or more competitive? Because I've heard both sides from pre previous classes at USC. I would say I could list some in both categories. I think there was spectrum. But like what I will say now, having been out of that program for over a decade, is that the ones that are still working in the industry and that are the most successful in the industry are the ones that were collaborative and not competitive. That's a great point. That's a great point. And one thing that I've found, at least so far, is People are incredibly collaborative and okay. I some, sometimes I wonder, I think, I think the administration has made that a focus 
In fact, one of our classes in the first semester is, a, is called Creativity and Collaboration. So we actually have a, a class dedicated to collaboration. But it's also, to your point, I think that I wonder if there's a little bit of the mindset of no one knows who's going to make it. So you better be nice to everybody. And that's also, that's USC, but that's also Hollywood in general. I feel like everywhere in LA, people are so nice to you because you don't yeah, know. You don't know. Who is, who are the, who are some of your classmates that have made it the biggest? Oh, Robin Marshall was a classmate of mine and she's like an executive at MRC. So is Ken Segna. But I think Robin's on the production side and I think mm. Ken is, they're in different departments at MRC, but they're both doing really well. Were they production or were they Starkeys? They were production. Yeah. Mm, I, nice. I knew a couple of Starkeys, but I don't know if this has changed since I was there, but there was a lot of division between the different programs and you didn't really get a chance to meet the people from like the Stark program or the writing program or the animation program. Everybody was just on their own tracks. It's still the same. In fact, a couple of my classmates right at the end of the semester, and I didn't go because just COVID cases, this latest variant is starting to surge again. But they did a mixer with the screenwriting program because it is still, I haven't to this day, I haven't met any Starkies. And I don't think I've just met one screenwriting student. There's, there is, or at least for me, there was a lot of great collaboration and crossover with the SDA students and with the composing students. But Starkies and screenwriting animation, I barely met anybody. So that's, yeah, that's the same. I wish that they would have more intermixing between those tracks because why not? It would be mm -hmm. helpful, <laughs> especially, mm -hmm. I'm sure everybody wants to know the Starkies because they're the ones that are going to be making some decisions in the future, theoretically. What was the most helpful class you took at USC? I would say that's either 507, which was the very first intro class, because I came into the program not really having a super strong background in film. Like I'd taken one class in, in college and undergrad, and then I'd PA'd on some indies in New York when I was living there between college and grad school. But I wasn't like very comfortable being like shooting stuff myself or with the whole process. So I think that was really helpful just because I needed to learn how to do stuff. And that was a class that asks you to do a lot of projects at a very quick rate. You don't have to go too crazy over any one particular one. So that was really good. But then I also took a directing class with Eugene Lazarev, who um, I sadly he passed away a couple of years ago, but this directing class was, was like specifically about directing actors. And that was extremely helpful to me because he just had, he was an actor himself. And so he had a lot of insight into actors are a special type of people. So. I didn't always necessarily feel comfortable working with actors. And he had, I remember one thing in particular he said was I had given one of my actors a direction that was like, oh, it's, you're in a cartoon here. This is like how frenetic it is or something like that. And he's like, don't tell people that they're in a cartoon if you want them to give something like grounded and realistic because their mind is automatically going to go into a space that is not grounded and realistic. And so just those kinds of like great observations uh, were really great in that class. That's a fantastic point. I think actually we should be required to take an acting class. So are you not? Because when I was there, we did have to participate. That was part of 507 was we had to do an acting component. So maybe that's one of the things that's changed because we all had to have a, a 
a portion of that class that we had to act in little scenes and be directed by each other. Yeah. We like maybe with the lighting setup, we did a little bit, but it wasn't like we had scenes and we had sides and so forth. And I also think there's a language that actors use. And there's a language, especially I think that theater directors use with actors. And it would be helpful to know a little bit of the grammar. And I know probably it was the same for you that the first couple of shorts that we shot in 507, we're all just acting in each other's films and you feel naked up there. And what'll happen is the director will yell cut and then they'll talk to the DP and they'll talk to the script supervisor and you're just standing there. Yes. So we actually, I think this is maybe an, a, another thing that you had a very particular pandemic experience because mm -hmm. we, I don't remember if we maybe weren't allowed to act in each other's things, but they definitely had like a showcase of a bunch of their acting students in the very beginning of my first semester and encouraged us to reach out to those students and cast our projects from those people. So we started working with actors from the very, very beginning, but then we did have that component of the side class that was the acting class. And it is definitely like I, I tried to act in high school and I randomly have a like small role in an indie film from a couple of years ago that just came along and it's like, okay, why not? And it is such a stressful thing to be an actor. And whenever people dismiss actors as being like, oh, they're just playing around for their living or that's such an easy job. And you don't know what you're talking about. Being an actor is really hard and being a good actor is almost impossible. So it's, I have a lot of respect for actors. People have no idea what a skill acting is. There's one of my 508 professors. So I'll have 508 in the fall, but we've already been emailing and interacting. His name is Jose Santana. And he made a great point. This was just in an email to the class. It was something along the lines of our job as directors is to capture authentic human emotion from performers. And when you look at it that way, and then of course, put it together in the edit, but when you look at it that way, the actors are the most important part the filmmaking process. I remember another like maxim, and I don't remember who said it, but it was definitely something that we talked about in film school was that some director was like, oh, casting is 90% of the process. Once you cast, yeah. Yeah. you've got your movie. And that for me, where I get totally lost in terms of losing track of time, just in flow state is in editing. But the most enjoyable part of production post is working with actors. That is my favorite thing. Do you like auditioning? I love auditions. I love it all. Obviously, the thing I don't like about auditioning is you're going to reject most people, but I love rehearsal and then on set. I love just the interaction with actors. What do you love about auditioning? I think because with everybody that comes in, you're like a different version of what your story could be. And I think that's a really cool thing to experience. Yeah, that's... The, when you ask me, do I like auditioning? That's the part that I like is because that's the first piece of magic. The, this, these, this stuff you wrote down on paper magically comes to life. And getting people to, if you were the writer of the project, like getting people to treat your words, like they're taking them seriously and they're important. That feels really yep. good. I've talked to a couple people about this. 
So for E4, so for the fourth short for 508, for 507, I used Breakdown Express to cast. And so the description, there were three roles, four minute student film, unpaid, and within 24 hours, there were 150 submissions. That's the amazing thing about making movies in LA is you will not be hard up to find performers. But it was both a blessing and a curse because you just see the downside or, or the superficiality of this. This is just a student film that literally no one's ever going to see. We don't even, in 507, you don't even call it a film. You just call it an exercise. And that like the first pass I did was just go through the headshots. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And you just see that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel right. And then once you get into the auditioning process or if they send a tape in or what is it, what have you, that's fun and that's interesting. But that first thing is just so competitive and it's so, the first pass is so superficial. It is. And again, that goes back to like why actors are really tough because it's just constant rejection all the time. And I think writers and most creative people also have that experience of constant rejection, but I think it's especially consistent for actors. Yeah. Yep. For sure. So one of the things that we talked about off air is how the industry is changing. And one of the things you talked about was adaptation. What are your thoughts about that? So I think, first of all, I understand why there's an impulse to want to adapt things because you're like, these are stories that people are already into. They have a built-in audience. It makes sense to, you know, make a different version of it. But I think it can really go wrong because I think there's a lack of understanding of what that process of adaptation is, because I think there's a lot of like misapprehension that you can take something that is going to, that was like a great book. And if you just state it word for word onto the screen, it'll be an equally good movie. And that's not the case. There is a skill and an art to adaptation. And I think a lot of the things that have really failed as adaptations are when they tried to take out the adaptation process of it. And it seems obvious because of the title, but like the movie adaptation is like such a great example of what can happen when you allow the adapting process to be creative. So I definitely, I, since I, I work at ABC, I do see a lot of deals of wanting to have these pre-existing properties that we're reinventing, but they don't always work out. And I think that's another, because I also do some work in theater. And I think there's also not a nuanced understanding of what it means to have a successful story told in different mediums, because something that works well on a screen isn't necessarily going to work well on a stage. And there's different like parameters that come along with different mediums that people don't always take the time to figure out how those are going to shift from medium to medium. Okay. I love this. Let's deep dive into this because we're talking story mechanics, right? The essential components of a story for film, of a story for theater, of a story in prose or in another medium. What is the key, and specifically with, adapta with adaptation, what is the key for telling a story in film? Or what are some of the keys? So I'll start off and say something that I think that is like really general first that you can apply to any medium. And then I'll, I'll say some more specific things maybe about specific mediums. But I think like the thing that you're always trying to do is to surprise your audience. You always want to have something that is like unexpected or 
that raises a question in their mind. So that keeps the momentum going. So I think like a constant effort to surprise whoever is watching is like something to always keep in mind. But it went because why is surprise? And I agree. Why is surprise important? Because otherwise you're going to fall asleep. You're going to, you're going to know what's happening. And for me, like the worst thing I can say about a movie or a play or a book was I was bored during it. Like that for right. me is like the ultimate, even if it doesn't, like, I would rather see something that doesn't make sense or that is imperfect or has even very big flaws that is interesting than I would want to see another like very trite retelling of a story that I could write in 30 minutes or something because all the dialogue is the same, all the like structures are the same. So people, I really think audiences get excited to see things that feel new. And that's why it often confuses me when we have so many things that feel so tired that are out in the industry. That's such a great point. And I actually want to just explore this idea of surprise for a little bit, because there's something delightful about being surprised, whether it's a joke, a knock-knock joke, right? Something as simple as a knock-knock joke, or why did the chicken cross the road, to a magic trick, to a story, to a surprise ending. There's something delightful. And I, I wonder, storytelling is such an integral component to the human experience. I sometimes wonder if it's, if we're almost hard-coded for story. And because we are so familiar with story, we can easily predict and we often project where we think the story is going to go. And master storytellers in the films that delight us the most or the stories that delight us the most um, play with those expectations often in a way that can both prize us and perhaps conform to the expectations just in a different way. That made me think of why stories exist for humans. And I think a lot of those initial impulses are because you're trying to make sense of the world around you. So that's where Aesop's fables came from or like mythology comes from. These are like people that are stories that exist because people were trying to make sense and understand why is this world happening the way that it happens. I wonder if one of the things that's great about storytelling when it surprises you is that it can give you an alternate like explanation for why things happen the way that they do. And that there's some freedom in that. If there's, if you're allowed to think about your life or your circumstances or the world in a new way, then that can be a really positive experience. It's, it's the light bulb moment. It's when two neural pathways connect. That's fascinating. Can you think of an example in your own work, whether it's writing, filmmaking, theater, where you had a nice surprise or twist of, of story expectation? The thing that came to mind is that there, there was a moment in, in one of my plays in a reading that I had of it where the audience collectively gasped. And when the audience collectively gasped, I was like, oh, I did it. I did. I was so proud. <laughs> like when you get the audible gasp, I feel like you feel you've accomplished that surprise element. I don't want to say what it was because in case anybody ever sees this play, then it's, it's the whole, it'll give away the whole ending of it. But it was a good was, gasp. <laughs> was it an unexpected gasp for you or an expected one? It was a hoped for gasp. I was like, I hope that this moment is going to hit people, but you never want to be too cocky about this, oh, this is going to be amazing. But so I was hoping for the gasp. And in that reading, I was very gratified to get the gasp. One of the best things about filmmaking and theater, as opposed to writing, is you can physically see and physically sense 
how the audience is responding. And without a doubt, if something works or it doesn't work. Yes. And that's been, I think, one of the real rough things during the pandemic is just not having that community of audience when you see a movie or when you see a play, because there is a different vibe that comes with seeing something with a bunch of other people than just seeing it in your living room on your laptop by yourself. Yeah. Yep. I remember reading about Spielberg when he was making Jaws, that they had two or three jump scares, moments where Spielberg would sit in the back of the audience and popcorn would just fly up in these test screenings because people were scared. And Spielberg said, I got greedy and I wanted one more. And so they went back and they shot the scene where one of the characters, it's early on in the film, it's a night dive to this abandoned boat. And then there's a hole in the side of the boat. And then this corpse, the head pops out. And that, that was like the fourth scare, that Spiel, the jump scare, the popcorn jumping up in the air scare that Spielberg wanted. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta dole them out, I guess. Like there's also like, it's also surprising to go for a while and not get a surprise and then get a surprise. Mm. If you're getting constant surprises, that's not surprising. Is there an example in popular film that you're thinking of? Since you can't share your theater one. I'm sad to say nothing is coming to mind at the moment, but if something pops up, I'll say it. Unless it's too mean. I don't want to like bad mouth things too much. Right. But I think of something, I'll let you know. Okay. So that's the idea of surprise, which is general to almost all forms of storytelling. And then you wanted to dive into something more specific with film. Yeah. So I think, and obviously like just talking in generalizations and with the caveat that there's always exceptions to be made for everything. I really feel like film is often a very like plot driven thing. Like something has to happen so that things are happening. People are having experience. For theater, I feel like there's some more leeway in terms of structure and format. So surprises can come in terms of like ways of expressing theatricality, or you can push the boundaries of what like structure is or what a play is in more ways than I think you can push the boundaries of what a traditional film is. And then I think for prose, the surprises often just come in the words themselves, like the way that the words are used in the wordsmithery of it. And that's not to say that the words aren't important in the other mediums or the plot isn't important in the other mediums or all, it's all important. But when I think about what really hinges on, for me, what a successful piece in any of those mediums are, I can boil it down to those umbrella ideas. That's so interesting because that makes me think of Richard Linkletter, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. And most of his films are light on plot. And normally I'm someone that likes, I like my plot, right? I like my each scene leading to the next character doesn't get what they want. That leads you to the next scene, et cetera, et cetera. And so Linkletter's movie Boyhood. I do love Boyhood. Great. Such a masterpiece. And there's a scene later on in the film when the main character is a high school student and he's hanging out with some of his friends. They're at an abandoned house. I think maybe they're drinking and there's an ax lying around or a knife and they pick up, I think it was an ax. They pick up the ax and they start throwing it like at the wall and that's it. That's the scene. Nothing bad happens, but we're so programmed for story and for something to happen that watching that, I saw that in the theater, everybody was on the edge of their seat because in a normal film, 
something's going to happen. It's at night, you're drinking, you're messing around with an edged object, a sharp object, something bad's going to happen. But no, it's just, we've all had moments where we're goofing off with friends and doing dumb stuff. And thankfully, almost never does anything bad happen. And that's just what he showed in the film. That, and that's such a great example of like a plant and then the payoff doesn't come, but the taking away of the payoff is a different kind of payoff. Link letters X. Chekhov's gun, Link Letters yeah, X. that's the new dramatic, like dramaturgical term for that. And that's the beauty of, of film is that it doesn't, there, there are many ways to tell a story. And obviously in, in traditional, traditional, what's the word I'm looking for? Big budget filmmaking. It's very much plot driven, but there are other ways to tell stories. Yeah, and USC is definitely, at least when I was there, they were very big on the, here's the structure, it's the three-act structure, and this is what happens at this page, this is what happens at the midpoint. And I do find those guidelines helpful, but I also find that they're, they're not that helpful if you already have storytelling sensibility, because I think a lot of like inherent storytelling sensibilities guide you through what those moments are. And then when you try to reverse engineer it by making it fit the formula, it backfires sometimes. Definitely. I think, and I, it's, I agree. And it's still like that, that, that traditional three act structure, traditional Hollywood storytelling, I think it's baked into USC and it's baked into everything we're doing. Three act structure is really helpful, at least for me, if that's how you're start if that's what you're starting with from your outline to your beat sheet to your first draft but like you said if you already have the story or a different way to tell the story and you write it and then you try to after the fact go back and make it fit a three act three act structure that's going to be that's usually going to be a house of horrors yep and i feel like a lot of industry executives who maybe aren't creatives will think that you're doing something wrong if you don't have this moment on this page or whatever, because that is such a like unspoken rule. That's the structure that screenplays are supposed to have. But I also like what you're saying about making a beat sheet and outlines and everything. That's actually one thing where that I've always failed at because I find it impossible to make a really detailed step outline the way that they're supposed to teach you to do in film school, because there's something about the process of having to think about it in this structured way that for me takes away the ability to surprise yourself as a writer. Like when you're just seeing what happens with characters and not trying to fit it into particular format. So I like, I understand the value of outlines, but I've never been able to write an outline and then write a script based off that outline. It just won't work for me. That's so interesting because I'm I, like outline is my, that's the way I approach it. Yeah. And I was a high school English teacher. So that kind of tracks, but also I just like to have things organized and it helps me with each step. So for you, you're not starting with story or plot. You're starting with character. I will often start with a moment. There will be mm -hmm. like a thing that like grabs me and then everything will expand out from that particular moment. Like I remember there was like one screenplay that I wrote that there were like two things that they like really hit me. And I was like, I want to write a screenplay with these two moments. And one is like two friends that are singing karaoke together. And like then a moment in a car with a stick shift where 
it's if are squished into a car next to a gear shift and somebody like shifts the gear shift and they like touch your leg as they're shifting. And just like, there's a weird erotic thing about like that accidental touch when you're shifting the gear shift. So I have a whole screenplay that came from just these two things that really spoke to me at that time. That's so interesting. So the downside of outlining everything and having the structure organized to a T is it can feel rote, right? To the audience. Okay. First act ends on page 30, second act ends on page 60, et cetera. The downside of the process you're describing for a lot of people, I think is you can start something, get halfway done, and then, ah, I don't know where this is going and bail on it. So how do you, is that a concern for you? Or once you start writing, you generally finish or how do you solve that issue? I'm pretty good about finishing stuff once I start things. Of course, there'll be like little bits here and there that I'll just like jot something down and it never turns into anything. But I think I'm like weirdly and maybe not productively, like not a quitter. And so I typically will just keep at something. It doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be brilliant, but I'll typically like finish things. And I think a part of the process for me is also just like eventually trusting yourself and like your unconscious mind to take you someplace. And maybe sometimes even trusting your unconscious mind more than you trust your conscious mind. Because your conscious mind is always going to be thinking, here's what I have to do at the midpoint. Here's what I have to do to bring it home at the end. But like your unconscious mind can also be pretty smart and give you some ideas about things to do. I agree hundred percent. I think our unconscious mind is smarter than our conscious mind. I think one of the most important things to do with any creative project is to just have that downtime where you put the script in a drawer or the project off to the side. And whether it's a week or a month or whatever, just let your unconscious mind work on it. Totally. And also like sometimes let your body work on it. Like sometimes you have to go for a walk. Like I, I often, when I'm like, I'm stuck on something, I'll just be like, all right, I got to go for a hike today and just see what happens. Cause sometimes like your body has to work stuff out too. hundred percent. There was an author I interviewed, a guy named Peter Olson, and we were talking this exact point. And I said, Peter, when you finish a draft, how long do you like to let it sit before you look at it again? And he had the best quote. He said, however long it is, it's never long enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it needs, I, the, the phrase I use is the dough needs time to rise. I'm just going to let it alone. Let your unconscious mind do its thing. Yeah. And take a nap too. That yes. Helps a lot. <laughs> Definitely. Story in film versus story in theater versus story in prose. What are your, what's your take on those three different mediums? I think it's really sad that the way that the world works right now, like tries to force people into identifying themselves as just working in one of those areas at a time, because I think there's a lot that filmmakers can learn by reading novels and a lot that novelists can learn by seeing plays. And I think it would be, it would be a more creative and satisfying landscape of media out there if there wasn't always pressure to like market yourself as I'm a screenwriter that does like sassy horror comedies or just to like have such a narrow definition of what people are allowed to do in each of those genres. For I sure. want people to do a lot of different things. In that intersection, even just the intersection of genre, 
that's where the fun is, I think. Totally. And I think that also goes to the whole surprise thing. Because one, like, one of the areas that I often find myself writing in is like tragic comedy, because I think when you put like really sad things next to really funny things, that creates a very specific tone that for me really hits home because I think of it like you end up laughing at something and then that opens you up emotionally and then that lets like the more dramatic things hit you harder. So for me, that's like what that particular kind of like mixing of genres does. But I think that you can say that for any other, let's put this thing next to this thing and see what happens when we work with both of these ideas at the same time. Because to your point, the deeper mechanics that we're talking about there are the intersections of emotion. And that's life, right? Life is never all good or all bad. It's always a mix of sweet and sad. Yeah. Some people will have you believe that their lives are all bad if you go on Twitter too much, but. Yeah. And if you go on Instagram, you believe that their lives are all good. All good. All good. Yeah. The, there was a, there's a comedian named Neil Brennan. And I saw his show in New York at the Cherry Lane Theater. And he calls what he does traumedy because he talks about this horrible childhood trauma he experienced growing up in, in a very dysfunctional household, but mixed in with jokes and comedy and kind of at the end. And it's, I forget the name of the show, but it's coming out on Netflix. At the end, he ties it all together with this one particular thing. And I saw it, my best friend and I saw it, and we just sat there stunned. And we just walked around the village for an hour and a half afterwards, just talking about what we'd just seen, because it was such, it was beautiful and so potent because it was a mix of two very different emotions. And in fact, Gerard Carmichael's latest special, Rothaniel, same kind of thing, super serious and intense and then funny and then intense and then sad and then funny. And it, it really impacts you because that's life. I haven't seen those, but I, that what you're saying reminds me, Hannah Gadsby's too. Yes. Special Another great example. Very, yeah. And that same idea. Yeah. What advice do you have for people, for incoming students at USC, starting their MFA at SCA? Spend as little money as you can. Okay. Wait, I have a, before we go any further, I'm sure it was the same for you. My classmates and I, we talk about this all the time. USC, one of the best film schools on planet earth, all the resources in the world, right? Sound stages, composing school, acting school, no, George Lucas building, Steven Spielberg building worth the price of admission or no. I do not regret the debt that I am in, but I do not think that the debt is a reasonable amount of debt. So I think I'm not like a financial expert. Like I don't, I'm not in economics. I don't really know how to punch those numbers but I don't think you ultimately when I was there I don't think you get the value for the money I don't yeah. think that you necessarily I, I don't know if there are there options that was the problem because all of a lot of grad schools are really expensive and of course you don't have to go to grad school but for somebody like me I feel like I did need to go to film school because I didn't have the ex experience like I needed to go to film school to even know how to begin, especially at the time that I went, because it was before people had cameras on their phones and stuff like that. So that was what was available. So I would see if you can find ways to keep your debt to a minimum. That's my first piece of advice. And because SC is usually in the top three film school rankings, right? So it's AFI, NYU, USC, usually in some order. So 
there was an alum who spoke to us a couple months ago, and he said the number he threw out was 30% of USC graduates are working in the industry. Yeah. And that's another thing that I, I'm not sure what the class sizes are in USC right now, but when I was there in just the production program, they would bring in 50 people in the fall and 50 people in the spring. Yeah, so it's six, 60 and 60 now. Oh, it's so it's even more now. And, you know, for the most part, those are 120 like wannabe directors that have dreams of being established feature film directors and the industry just can't support 120 new auteurs every year. So I, I don't know that's necessarily like a responsible number of people to put into that amount of debt. And so if we're just being real here, which we are, if let's say the top three law schools in the U.S., let's say it's Harvard, Yale, Princeton. If I go to Harvard Law School and incur, pay that much tuition or that much, incur that much debt, I'm 100, even on the bottom of my class, I'm 100% guaranteed to enter the legal profession, right? If I go to one of the top three medical schools, I'm a hundred percent guaranteed to get a job. So if you, if it's basically 30%, now that doesn't take into account probably academia and other ancillary roles just in working in the film industry. But if you're going to one of the top three programs and it's a 30% shot at working in the industry, I don't know that it is worth it. Yeah, you, I think I went to film school. I started when I was 23. And so I always chalk it up to, oh, my brain wasn't actually completely finished by then because your brain keeps on 25 is the age that you're like done. So I, no, I disagree. I think we're, I think we're never done. We're never yeah, done. like you're, you're at least more mature at 25 for sure. Yeah. I think at 23, you know, I just had a lot of certainty that I would figure out a way to be successful and that. So what's your take on that now, L looking back now? I think that I was not, it wasn't that I wasn't savvy about the film world. I just wasn't savvy about the world in general, because I thought that things in the world, in the adult world, played out in a more cause and effect kind of way. And the world is just a lot more arbitrary and you can't count on things having the cause and effects that you expect them to. Yes. And the world works on relationships, which that's a, that's in the plus column for USC, no doubt. Do you? And also a minus, I think, because yeah, I think go. a lot of nepotism that exists too. So right. there's the flip side of that. Do you, so looking back, was going to USC the right decision or no? I think yes, but I think you, ha I have to say that because if I say it was the wrong decision, then, you know, that'll push me into an existential crisis. Because <laughs> Then you know, what then? What do I do with the debt? What do I do with the fact that I live in Los Angeles? What is this like random degree that's sitting on my desk having to do with anything? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I have. I do not want you to go into existential crisis. <laughs> thank you, thank <laughs> that would not be a good outcome yeah. <laughs> of this podcast. I certainly can like take myself down that path. But like, also, I think you have to look at it like what were the options that you had at the time? And I think it was the best option I had at the time. So you can't pick a choice that you didn't have available to you at the time. It was the best option I had at the time. And I think it was the right thing to do given that. Nice. Okay. So back to advice for incoming MFA students. You just said it, like the relationships are the important thing. You're not going to be besties with everybody in your class, but or everybody that you meet. But I still have people that I'm in touch with now that were like actors and films that I produced when I was at USC and that I hang out with. And obviously my classmates, I have some classmates that are still really good friends. And this was, I, I technically graduated 
I, I walked in the 2007 graduation ceremony, but then it took me a little bit to finish my thesis film. And so I think I technically graduated in January of 09, maybe have to double check on that. But yeah, it's over a decade later and I'm still very close with a lot of the people from grad school and a lot of the people from undergrad too. So keeping those relationships allowed is, yeah, key. What's the log line for your thesis film? Oh, I don't even... Oh, I can't even remember what my logline was, but it was called The Broken Heart of Gnocchi Bolognese. And it was like a whimsical fantasy about a woman named Gnocchi Bolognese who has always wondered about her name. And she was named after her chef father's famous dish, but she's estranged from her father. And it's like her journey to come to terms with not having a father in her life. Is it available online? No, because I don't know if they still do this, but with your USC thesis film, you can't put it, you're not allowed to put it. Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They told online, but they told us that everything belongs to USC. But I do have a, I have a stack of DVD screeners for anybody that's interested. I'm happy to share them. Nice. That's the perfect way to end. Please tell people where they can find you. So my website is katherinevondi.com. Kat, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was my interview with Catherine Vondi. Right at the end there, she left her Twitter handle as well, but the audio software didn't pick it up. So Kat's Twitter handle is Walking Deadpan. That's at Walking Deadpan on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is BeGuest. And you can find all of my work at Benbo.substack.com. That's Benbo.substack.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to just one other person. Thank you and have a great day.